Hi, this is Michael Neal, author of The Inside Out Revolution, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Michael Neal. Michael Neal is the founder and CEO of Genius Catalyst. Since its inception in the United Kingdom in 1990 to its incorporation in the USA, Michael has spearheaded its growth from a consultancy to a multimedia organization, delivering services to tens of thousands of loyal customers across multiple industries and countries each year through live training, online courses, and self-study programs. He's authored six best-selling books, including Creating the Impossible, The Space Within, and Supercoach. His books have been translated into more than 25 languages and have been the foundation of his public talks, retreats, and seminars. His TED Talks, Why Aren't We Awesomer? and Can a TED Talk Really Change the World? have been viewed by over 2 million people, and his blog and podcast, Caffeine for the Soul, have been entertaining and inspiring audiences around the world for more than 20. Michael is based outside of Los Angeles and is here to talk about his book, The Inside Out Revolution, the only thing you need to know to change your life forever. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Tell me, when you were growing up, Michael, Who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? I feel funny a a little bit about saying it, but my dad ran a relatively small manufacturing company, about 50 employees, and he loved it. Basically, what they did was drill long holes in metal, but that turned out to mean that he created the legs to the lunar module that landed on the moon. He helped invent and create the air refueling probes for helicopters. He worked on stuff for oil wells. It was this thing that to me as a kid growing up, wanting excitement was like, but for him, he absolutely loved it. He loved the people who worked for him. What I got from that growing up wasn't a love for drilling holes in metal, but it was a sense that if we love what we do, it's just going to go better. If we don't, then that's probably not what we should be doing. What a great message to absorb through being in daily conversations with your dad and hearing him talk about his work as he came home and probably the people he was working with. Do you remember a time when you realized how important that guidance was, that implicit message you got about loving what you do in an important decision that you made or a choice that you made early in your adulthood? I think I really realized it only by its absence elsewhere. Because it was what I grew up with. It was the water I grew up swimming in. It didn't seem like anything special or unusual or difficult. It was like, of course, I'm going to create a business around what I love doing. Why on earth wouldn't I? It was only years and years later when my own son, who's now 27, set out in the business world and said to me that the most important things that he'd learned from me were that you could really create a business out of what you love and that none of the people that he was working with knew that. That was what it was like obvious to me, like, oh, that's That's not normal. I'm sure I'd bumped into it before, but that was when it became really obvious was in my own son. It's interesting because our relationships do start with the people who are closest to us, our friends, our family, the employees we work with on a regular basis. When you wrote Inside Out Revolution, what was your objective? What did you want people to understand as you were writing it? What I wanted people to understand was the thing that had fundamentally changed my own life and business, which is that the the mind doesn't work the way I grew up thinking it worked. I grew up 
up thinking that the mind was the brain and that the brain was like a camera and it photographed reality and whatever you came in through, you could maybe change the angle that you were photographing reality from to make it look better. That was the extent of the value of it. What I came to see was that actually the mind is much more like a movie projector or a paintbrush even than it is a camera. We are actually creating the personal realities we're working inside of where everyone is like this or nobody is like that. You can't get the people or supply chain, whatever the problems were. You know, my wife, it was funny. I would say it was really seeing we live in the feeling of our thinking, not the feeling of our circumstances, not the feeling of the world. My wife, when she read the book, said, I really loved this. But if you don't mind my saying so, it seems simple. And I was like, okay, cool. What do you think it's about? She said, well, you're really telling people that most of the time they're making mountains out of molehills and they don't have to and work goes better when you're not. I was like, yeah, okay. I like to think there's a little more philosophy behind it, but that is not a bad interpretation of what comes through there. I think that's what it is. Very often when people first hear the, the message in the book, they go, well, it can't be that simple. No, no, no. I mean, what about if this is happening and what about what happened to me before? What about this? What about that? I don't know what to tell them other than actually it can be that simple. It's a choice once you see it. Fairness, it, it's not a choice if you don't know it's a choice because it really feels like when you're, I use a metaphor in the book of the glass elevator of consciousness, that at the bottom of the elevator, that whatever I think is what's real. We all know people who live there. It's like, well, this is just how it is and you just got to learn to deal with it. You either thrive or are ground down by that. But if you take your own thinking too seriously over time, ground down, burned out, those are the really common things. As you start to see more, you go up the elevator and you start to go, okay, well, maybe it's a little bit subjective. I guess somebody else in this situation might see it differently. And I guess I've been to movies with people where I thought the movie was terrible and they thought it was great or vice versa. I guess, okay, it, it might be a little subjective. Then you go up the elevator again and you start to see, oh, it's not just that it's subjective, it's constructed. Like I'm making up how this is and then living inside it, like the holodeck on Star Trek where I create this world and when I'm in it, it seems so real. But outside of my own head, a lot of it isn't. Ultimately, there is a sort of a level on the elevator you can get to where you really see how arbitrary so much of what we think is, that it's not even based on a true story. It's just made up. That oddly is incredibly liberating because you're free to make it up different. How does somebody get from the point of understanding that we're creating our own reality by the stories we tell ourselves to the point of saying, not only do you create your own story, but you can change it. That's a big jump for a lot of people who are hearing this for the first time. I'll take them further before I take them back, which is ultimately it turns out you don't need a story. What do you mean like by that? Well, I used to talk about creating a better story in my work as the most useful, because that's what a story is. You're making something up. And yeah, if you make up this story instead of that story, that's a nicer story. Let's make that one up. But if you are willing to try living and working without a story, then you're just left with what is. We're all made to thrive with what is. We're really good at eating what's on our plate. We're really not made to eat what was on our plate yesterday or five years ago or 10 years ago. We're certainly not made to eat what we think might be on our plate tomorrow. In the same way, if that's our physical way we work, psychologically, we are made to handle what is. 
but we're continually trying to handle stuff that isn't, that we've made up and is told stories about. You described a person who came to you who was the wife of a client of yours, a coaching client, and her name was Alice. In your book, you described that, how she came to you very upset and really feeling like she had no options. In a matter of one conversation, she left with a completely different perception about her choices, her abilities, and her goals. Can you give a quick recap of that so we could understand from the perspective of someone who, who was married to someone who she felt where she had no choice in the matter? Because I think many people can relate to feeling trapped. Yeah, it, it has a happy ending. I'll ruin the ending now so you can enjoy the story. I, I was approached by this guy and he was a, a successful businessman and he was suicidal. And it's not normally what I do, but I did it as a favor rather than as a paid thing, just because I don't particularly like seeing people suffer if I can help it. I, I spoke with him and I could tell that he felt settled when he was listening to me, but didn't really see what I was talking about. I could tell by the questions he was asking and the things that he was saying. I knew that from emails that we'd exchanged that his wife was pretty upset about things. I said, look, while we've got time still that I booked out, do you mind if I have a chat with your wife? Because it sounds like she'd be interested in this too. He's like, oh, no, no, that would be great. She came on and she was just did you fix him? I mean, it was just like, she was just mad. And she was talking about leaving him and about how she couldn't deal with it anymore. And the kids couldn't deal with it anymore. And she was listing all of the holidays ruined because he was terrified that he'd miss out on something on the business. In the end, the reason it can happen doesn't always, but it can happen as quickly as one conversation is because it's true. If you hear noise and you think it's coming from a monster and I show you that it's the radiator, we're done. There's no practice needed. You don't have to get into the habit of telling yourself it's the radiator. It's the radiator. In the same way with Alice, what happened was she saw that she was turning his behavior into the cause of her feeling that she was, I have to be angry and frustrated and upset and scared because he is behaving the way he's behaving. She just saw, because it came up in conversation, all these examples where she wasn't impacted in that way. All these times where it didn't get to her. She saw it. And often when somebody sees it, it's sudden. It's just like a moment of insight. She just was like, oh, I don't want to leave him. I'm just mad at him. Once she saw that, her own kind of natural wisdom and common sense kicked in and it, it was beautiful to watch how her entire way of being with him changed from that one conversation. And over time, his did. And they sent me, they don't do it anymore, but for a few years, I'd get postcards from around the world from places that they had traveled as a family that they were loving. It makes the book because it was a very satisfying story. What's interesting is that many times we feel ourselves righteous and indignant that someone is wronging us. Yet the truth of the matter is that we've created that sense of anger, frustration, and are directing it outward. We've really put ourselves into the victim position, haven't we? Oh, we do. We come by it honestly. Like, we really feel that. We pass a lie detector test. The fact that it isn't true doesn't enter into it for a while. I'll give you another example. I worked with uh, CEO Bob and his team, I think it was about 150 people. They'd been in business for 20 years and he was burnt out hard. Bob's wife told him that he's got to see me and I, I asked him why and he said, well, I'm just completely fallen apart. I hate this and I've got an offer to sell the company and I'm going to lose a fortune on it. But at this point, anything is better than this. My wife said, before you sell the company, talk to this guy. Can I talk to you? And I was like, yes, we can work it out. Come on out for a few days. That one didn't feel to me like it was a quick conversation on the phone. He did come out. And that first day he poured out the litany, the victim story. Again, if that makes it sound demeaning, it was what it looked like to him, that there were all of these circumstances that were forcing him to be as stressed as he was, that were putting all this pressure on him 
and that were causing him to burn out. But as we talked, as always happens, he settled a bit. He got underneath the noise of his own thinking. His natural thing that had let him run the company successfully for so many years kicked in. He just saw, oh my God, I'm making mountains out of molehills here. Any of these individual things I'm talking about, I know that if I'm in a good place, I can handle. It was so dramatic over the change in him that it makes it sound like this always happens. Actually, this is the only other time I can think of it happening. But I, again, on day two said, hey, could you fly your wife out so that we can talk? Because I worry if you go home like this, she's going to think you were faking it or something. Because it was that dramatic a shift. And his wife came out and I thought she'd be thrilled. She was furious. Like for about an hour, she went at him. Are you still going to medication for the flight home? He's like, I don't know. Right now, I don't feel like I'd need it. But if I do, I will. Well, are you still going to sell the company? Well, not at that price. But if it's above this, actually, I think I might like to try new things. If it's in this range, we'll have to see. And after about an hour, she got, he wasn't faking it. It wasn't a positive mental attitude that he was trying to adopt. It just didn't look scary to him anymore. That was great. They went home about six weeks later. He reached out and they'd reached an agreement on a sale where he made over six million in profit instead of loss selling the business. Then he went on and did start another business that was very different and very kind of fun for him. It is amazing how much things can change just by seeing how much of what you're up against is actually your own thinking, not the world. What you're up against in the world, you can handle. Sure. By being in the right frame of mind, you have access to all of your resources and your capabilities. But when you're in a cruddy state of mind, you really don't. And it is hard. And it's not just positive thinking, it's changing your perspective. How do you describe that? See, one of my secret weapons, one of the things I've got going for me is what I'm pointing to isn't a more useful lie. It's actually true. Even if I'm not on my game, there's a decent chance people will see it just because we're talking about it. It's not like a shift in perspective. I think about it this way. It's seeing what's really going and what is really going on in any moment is a lot of noise in head, a lot of preoccupation with my thinking about something and a disconnect from my own innate genius, my own innate spark, the thing that makes me good at what I do. When I go into companies, it's a very basic explanation of what's on offer. It's, hey, what if your people could be at their best more of the time and do less damage when they're off their game? That's what's on offer. That's what the book's about. One of the metaphors you use that I think people will really gravitate towards, it, you learned from George Pransky, who's another business consultant and a psychologist. And he talked about how the mind and our receptivity to learning is like a race car tachometer. Can you describe that, please? Yeah. Dr. Pransky is one of my early mentors in the work that I do. He tended to work actually with larger companies, like I, the biggest companies. He trained over 6,000 employees at one company. He is an extraordinary guy. He's retired, but he's still an extraordinary guy. This metaphor for is for how the mind works. He said it's like the tachometer in a race car. In a car, it's revolutions per minute that it measures. Like how fast is the engine going? He talked about how our minds kind of work like that, except it's thoughts per minute. TPM instead of RPM. That if you're like zero to 50 thoughts per minute, these aren't real numbers because there's no real way to measure it. But if you've got a slow idle, then generally speaking, those are those moments of real peace. A lot of us get them mostly on holiday, but sometimes we can even get them in the midst of the day at work. They're those little moments of calm and quiet, the respites. Then 50 to 150 thoughts per minute, you're in flow. It's that thing that everybody loves in business where just you're on your game and it's not stressful. It's just the next thing shows up and you're almost surprised at what's coming out of you and through you and happening. We love operating at that level. 150 to 250 is okay. It's still flowy, but there's a little bit of tension in there. There's a little bit of stress in there. 250 to 350, now it's pretty stressful and we're doing okay as long as everybody does what they did and nothing is delayed and nothing goes wrong. You get up over 350 and it's just stress and 
pressure. I freaking hate this place and I hate all of you. What I had never seen before, but was obvious to me once I came across the metaphor is, oh yeah, that's what's creating the feeling in me. It's not the situation. Because if I hit the same situation and I'm running on 50 to 150, it's just, okay, we need to handle this. Okay, we need to handle that. Whereas when I am over revving, everything looks difficult. The beautiful thing, my favorite thing about the metaphor is if you want to slow your rev, you don't have to hit the brakes. You just have to take your foot off the gas. What is another misconception that people often go to when they first hear this metaphor and how it's applicable to their management style or leadership communications? The most common one is thinking that you need to control the content of your thinking. That's the positive thinking idea. This is a negative thought, so I want to replace it with a positive thought. This is a low self-esteem thought, so I want a high self-esteem thought. This is a victim thought. I want an empowered leader thought. That keeps you stuck in the rev of thought. When you just see the simple way we're made, like I was talking about, we're made to eat what's on our plate today. We're made to do really well when our minds are going at about the speed of life. Very few people who are successful in business have minds that are going slower than the speed of life. It's almost inevitably slowing down to the speed of life. For someone listening to this, what is a recommendation that you have for a practical way to experience that by choice and by design? The most practical way isn't a practice. The most practical way I've seen with the most lasting results is for somebody to just really look at it and see if they can see the truth of it. Because once you see something's true, you don't have to think about it anymore. Once you see, oh, when I get revved up, I don't do as well. I don't feel as well. I don't treat people as well. And bad things come out of decisions made and actions taken from that place. When I am in this flow state, I do great. Yeah, and still everything doesn't work out because I live on earth, but so much better. Once I really see that, I lose interest in revving up and I just naturally am more and more inclined to operate at those sort of lower TPMs. I think that a lot of people get tripped up or put off by the phrases like effortless success and effortless productivity. Really, they want to find something to work hard at because that's been their model. That's been how they've judged the seriousness of their work and of their commitment. How do you help them connect with that and move from there to a place where they can experience the kind of flow state that you're describing? It's funny because my own agent, when I I first published Effortless Success said, you can't do that. I said, why not? He said, because I see you work. I said, okay, then let's call it seemingly effortless success. Because I'm not saying you don't have to put in the hour. What I'm talking about when I talk about effortless is without the struggle without the tension, without the tightness and the striving and the pressure. I'm not talking about not working, but I tell you what, you can get more done in less time when you're not in that state than you could possibly do when you're in that state. There is always a point of diminishing returns when we try too hard. In that sense, effortless is a metaphor for not struggling. Mm -hmm. What's been your observation? I think that we're in the midst of one of the greatest experiments we've ever seen a history about professional work with the lockdown, work from home, hybrid work and everything. It's not been a pleasant journey for many people. What's been your observation and interpretation of what's happened? How can we make the most of it given the new opportunities and the new openness to flexible arrangements that have come about from this period of history we're living? My first observation, and it did surprise me, was how many of the CEOs that I was working with thrived in the early part of this. I mean, everybody had a wobble 
But very quickly, people saw, oh, we can use this to cut a bunch of extraneous costs that we had just been putting up with because everything was going fine. We can use this to make better arrangements with suppliers, better arrangements with the buildings that we lease, better arrangements on things that suit us more. I was very pleasantly surprised that the people who didn't freak themselves out, or at least didn't freak themselves out for too long, really were able to grow their businesses through this. That was true for me as well. What I hope is the new normal that emerges because the old normal is clearly dead. But what I hope emerges as the new normal is that kind of responsiveness where we don't try to run everything on autopilot. We don't try to automate everything. Yes, there's some stuff that's easy to automate and worth automating, but we're happy to go back to the drawing board as often as we need to because it's not stressful because it's not, oh, I can't go back to the drawing board again. It's no, the best stuff comes at the drawing board. If I am open to that, if I am not revving myself at the same time as the world is being volatile, if I have very low inner volatility, then the world's outer volatility is much easier to manage. But if I am going up and down and up and down and up and down, and the world is going up and down and up and down and up and down, there's going to be a lot of bumps because we're very unlikely to be going up and down and sing. Of the CEOs you work with, think of one who has found a way to prosper and thrive during this period. And what are some of the things that he or she is thinking about that others listening to this could adopt and start to ask these questions within their own organization to encourage themselves to have kind of broader discussion to calibrate and say, okay, when we're having this discussion, we're at least bringing our tachometers down. Yeah. It's funny because two come to mind, but one, just because I was so impressed at his ability to what I had described to him is, wow, you're really holding your nerve because he runs an entertainment group, literally restaurants, bars, music venues, all things that got shut down. Fred, as everyone did, had a moment of freak out, then paused, talked to the, the financial backers of the company. They said, we're going to ride this, but you got to get it together. Managed to cut their costs to their monthly nut. They got it down by 700% in the space of a month and a half. Now, that still was a pretty big amount of money, but as a burn rate, it it was very sustainable. They did that by making deals with music venues that were going to be shut anyways. One of the restaurant chains, which had already been losing, they cut ties with. It was aggressive, but it was not hostile in any way because it wasn't driven by fear. It was practical. What it meant is that as things started to come back online, he was able to quickly get back up to speed because he'd maintained good relationships with everybody along the way. The streamlining of the business meant that the gear up took far less time than anyone expected it to. And they were back profitable within two years, which given that their entire business model shut down was that blew me away, to be honest, watching from the sidelines. Now to contrast it, and I won't pick a person for this because none of my clients, God willing, do this. But then they much speak anymore. of others or competition or associates. The most common two strategies, which aren't intentional and aren't effective that I watched during the pandemic with companies that didn't thrive were, let me completely freak myself out and then make business decisions. I'm going to completely scare myself about everything that can go wrong and then try and fix it. Or I'm going to piss myself off about everything that is going wrong and then try to fix it. Of course, we're at our least creative, our least fluid. We're so far out of that genius zone, that flow zone. It's very rare good things are going to happen. That's one. The other is they got discouraged. They let discouragement be the base from which they tried to rebuild. It's probably not going to work. Well, it's probably too late. There's nothing we can do, but I guess let's try. It will come as a surprise to no one that discouragement does not 
breed creativity, enthusiasm, or any of the things that lead to success. The people who I have seen thrive, the CEOs whose companies have come through with flying colors, if not exactly the same as they were before, were the ones that both, if they did scare themselves, knew that was not a good time to make business decisions, but were able to discouragement-proof themselves. What's something that the CEOs who thrived that we could observe that they did as a change in their organization, the way that they're related to their customers, that we could emulate? What they did is they shared with their people the same kinds of things I share in the book about how if you don't create the stress, if you don't create the pressure, there's something in us that is made for this, that actually thrives on it, that actually does almost better when there's a lot at stake than when there's nothing at stake on the spot, in the spotlight. One sales manager, this was reported back to me through the CEO, said to his team, boy, if this pandemic goes on a little bit longer, we're going to own the industry. <laughs> because everybody else was starting, well, we've lost, but let's try. Whereas their guys were like, okay, next. You could think of it as a prescription, right? I will tell my people to be positive, but that doesn't work. We all know that doesn't work. You can't sustain it. Whereas if you really see I'm the one who's making this hell and I don't have to, then suddenly again, that natural spark in us, that natural genius, that natural creativity starts coming through and driving things. I love the Las Vegas gambling casino metaphor where people said, what we want to do is pay you $500 a night in order to gamble $50,000 worth of the house's money and just find out how that goes and just help create an atmosphere of making bold bets. How can people use that sort of metaphor to effectively connect them with their sense of power and their sense of ease in business and the rest of their lives? This is one where there may be a gap between simple and easy because it is quite simple, but it is not necessarily easy. If you can see that your well-being is not at stake because your well-being is what's sitting there underneath the noise of all your thinking revved up. If you can see, hey, either I'm going to have this great experience and my business is going to thrive, or I'm going to have this great experience and my business isn't going to thrive. And I'm going to do everything I know to do and everything that occurs to me to do to help it thrive. But what I'm not going to do is attach my well-being to how the business is Doing. then you are playing with the house's money. That's why that's the metaphor. Because you got, at the end of the night, either you're going to have lost the 50 grand and you're going to come back and you go, oh, that sucked. Thanks for my money and, and leave. Or you're going to make a ton of money, give it all back, take your 500 bucks and go, that was fun, right? Either way, you're okay at the end of the night. If you know that and you know that by looking, you know that by beginning to differentiate between yourself and the noise of your thinking, then actually that happens naturally. That's really a description, not a prescription. It's just what it's like when your well-being is not on the line with vagaries of your business. What I like, and this is the insight that I just gained some clarity as I'm listening to you describe it, is that the metaphor isn't the destination. It's a bridge to the destination. It's a bridge to the truth that helps people get there. That's why I use so many metaphors. That's why you can't take a metaphor too far because it's not about the metaphor, but the metaphor is a way of describing something that is possible. We've all had moments of that, but most business leaders that I speak to don't realize, oh no, that's the way we're made, which means that it's actually far easier to hook into it than if it was something you were trying to create as a positive habit. Michael, with all of the preparation and the work that you've done in your life and with your clients, I wonder if it's brought you to this moment. Are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round? We're going to find out together, aren't we? Yes. At the beginning of the interview, I asked you about someone who influenced and inspired you, and you talked about your dad who led this manufacturing 
manufacturing operation and really taught you about how when you love your work, there's nothing else like it. As a teenager, what's a song that you love? Oh, I was an Elvis Costello and the Clash kind of a guy. The, the, the one <laughs> comes to me is a song called Oliver's Army. I, I briefly worked for one summer for my dad driving a forklift and I did not love that job. I would play Oliver's Army and the chorus of Oliver's Army is, and I would rather be anywhere else but here today. I would just jam that out in the parking lot before walking into work. So yeah, that's the one that comes to mind. What do you find has been the best way, even given this time now when we're not having as many live events that you've found to get the word out about your mission each and every week? In some ways, it's been much easier for because we couldn't go live. We had to go online. Now we were already online with a lot of things, so we had a bit of a head start, but we just actually opened up one of our memberships to the world. We just said it's something we normally charge $100 a year for, not a highly expensive, but we just opened it up to everybody. We had thousands and thousands of people who were new to the work come in to check it out and they wound up staying. We ran it that way for about 18 months. And at that point we went back to fee. And of course we had a much, much bigger audience than when, when we started. What's a book that you've given away the most as a gift? That's not one of your own. I would say it's The Missing Link by Sid Banks. It's a, a book of sort of spiritual and philosophical aphorism, just lots of one-liners. And it's one of those things where if you try to read it, it doesn't make it. It's just a book of one-liners. But inevitably, what I found is that people will open the book one day and read something and go, oh. And so I love it because it's filled with things that one day you read it and they mean nothing to you, but then it hits you another day and you're like, oh my goodness, that changes everything. What would you say is the most important habit, skill, or belief that you've changed or stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Uh, honestly, I, I am not aware of a particular habit or skill or belief, but I guess the closest thing to that is I decided that I wanted to get real with this at another level. I actually, funnily enough, was listening to an interview with myself where I was talking about stress and pressure on a business podcast and I'd forgotten, like I'd gotten caught up in my own thinking and my own rev. It was like, do you know what? I talk about this too much. I, I want to go back to living it more and then I'll talk about it again. It was probably just that commitment to get real with this and not just preach it, but live it. After you made the decision, what's a way that you started to realize that you were following through with that decision? Oh, I felt better and was less stressed. It was that simple. It, it's just, oh, when I got stressed out, I didn't look for something outside me to blame it on. It, it, it's back to basics, it, Inside Out Revolution 101. But it was really nice to reconnect with it in that way. You have been so generous and helped us learn so much in this interview today. I want to thank you for sharing with us the story about your dad, helping us understand that the mind doesn't think or work the way that we think it does, and to be open to new ways of seeing how it can work work better. And it doesn't require as much effort as we think it might. The idea of a glass elevator of consciousness, that the more you ascend in your consciousness, the more choices you have and the more free that you be. You talked about Bob, who was the CEO who really needed to make changes in his business. You talked about the importance of, of finding a way to help um, people connect and um, what George Lansky taught you about the tachometer and also for the idea of being able to grasp the difference between what's simple and easy. For these and so many more reasons, Michael, 
I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you for having me. Michael, before we say goodbye for now, where can we find out more about you and your work online? I had my team build me a playground on the web at michaelneal.org. We have podcasts and books and blogs and programs and basically any anything that I create and I do a lot of creating shows up at michaelneal.org first. We're going to link in the show notes to michaelneal.org as well as your social media, as well as places to buy the book to make it super easy, effortless even, for people who are listening go to the show notes and find out more about you and your work online. Arnold Patton wrote these three sentences in his book, Money. We don't create abundance. Abundance is always present. We create limitation. Anything that you create, you can change. For everyone listening, continue on your journey of the inside out revolution and take with you the insights and encouragement from our conversation today. Michael Neal, author of the inside out revolution, the only thing you need to know to change your life forever. I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Bill and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.